Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Fall is right around the corner, but I'm not ready to let go of the refreshing food and drinks of warmer weather. Our food and wine gurus are here to help us make the transition from summer to autumn on our plates and in our wine glasses. Joining me in the studio, Amy Traverso, senior food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Welcome back, Amy. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. And Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Hello again, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. Well, it's that time of year where my face is long because I really don't want to think about cooler weather. <sighs> I'm feeling that so hard right now. And I uh, guess I have to give up my rosé because I think it's a little declassé in, in the fall and uh, winter weather. So I'm trying to get my mind around other things to drink. As it turns out, Jonathan. Vodka. <laughs> At this point in the well, end of the summer, well, I'm ready just to shoot. The, sort of it's, like, it's like you're reading my mind. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, well, now we know that the big trend is wine and cocktails. Uh, and uh, I didn't uh, realize how big that was, yeah, wine and cocktails. Yes. So. Well, this is something that we are, in some ways, just starting to see in Boston. Um, I was just in San Francisco uh, visiting my daughter, and you see this everywhere. Not just sangria, not just lilay, not just vermouth, but wine as an actual ingredient in the cocktail. And one of the things that we're loving is a couple of things. One is a sherry Manhattan. Hmm. So instead of using vermouth, use sherry instead. And this way, if you're a Manhattan lover and you're listening to the sound of my voice, (laughs) you know whether you prefer a sweet Manhattan or a dry Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And that way you can pick the sherry because there's super sweet sherry and then there's dry Mm. sherry as well. So you can tune it to your taste. Well, you know, the thing is I've been noticing because I've been drinking a lot of cocktails. Cocktails are back anyway. We've discussed that on this show. Yeah. Big time. So this seems to be just the next step in it with wine becoming a part of the cocktails. But I was also fascinated that at the Boston Wine School, I mean, you do all kinds of um, libations, shall we say, but you got whiskey as a big (laughs) class. Yes. And I've seen whiskey a lot now in my cocktail trolling. Yeah. Why? Well, so we've been doing whiskey classes now for probably five years at the wine school. And what we do is generally kind of an overview intro to whiskey. We start out with moonshine, and right, which is how which is which is how all whiskey starts its life. Right, that's true. Um, and then rye whiskey, corn whiskey, you know, bourbon. Yeah. Uh, then Irish whiskey, then Scotch whiskey, and that way people get to taste a range of what is whiskey. Because people say, "I like whiskey" or "I don't like whiskey." Mm-hmm. We need more of a conversation. The range of flavors is so broad. Which one do you like? Are you a corn whiskey mm. person, you know, a bourbon person, or are you a, a, a scotch person? Mm. Whether you like it or don't like it, we need a little bit more conversation, and then that's what we do in class. It's exactly what we do with wine, so it's just, you know, doing a straight substitution of just another but delightful liquid. Tasting right. wine, though, I mean, I, I actually am a bourbon person, but mm. tasting wine... It's so much gentler on the palate than, you know, whiskey. How about it? uh, Whiskey's hardcore. I mean, there's a certain amount of like, whoo. Yeah, it can be overwhelming for people. Um, And that's why we usually start out with great bourbon barrel aged 
beers out there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so we'll start out with that to kind of soften up their palate a little bit. And go on from there. And then the moonshine, no one wants to drink a lot of that. You know, people (laughs) are just sort of of tasting that and going, you know, oh, Civil War reenactor whiskey. There's a little Connecticut moonshine culture. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's for another conversation. It's it's everywhere. (laughs) I will leave you with this regarding the whiskey versus the wine. I think you will appreciate this. I have a good friend from New Orleans who has informed me that she grew up in bars when she was 13. Mm. So she came to my house and she was visiting and I was out and I said, you know, just drink whatever. She came, when I came home, she was all frustrated. She said, wine, 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 where is the liquor? And I said, well, it's there, it's in the cabinet. She said, no, no, it needs to be out. Uh, you, have, so, you have no alcohol. Exactly. So anyway, moving on. All yes. right, so Amy, getting our minds transitionally ready uh. to leave behind the lovely char-grilled foods outside and move to other stuff. What's top of your mind about transitional food? Okay, so given that I am a reluctant transitioner. Yes, me too. That's why I'm asking. (laughs) I, I mean, the thing is, and the thing is that we have to remember, September, we think of you know, summer uh, and August as being the peak. September is the peak mm. of local produce. Mm. So all the best corn, the great tomatoes now, are they're fully ripe. Everything's coming in. I just went to a farm dinner at the Chatham Bars Inn last week. I mean, the quality of the produce, they actually have their own farm down mm. there um, that supplies the restaurants. And the quality of the produce that is coming out of the fields right now is amazing. So really kind of continue a little bit of your summer cooking. But as the weather changes and the temperatures start to drop, I would start adding, you know, hearty whole grains and do, I mean, bowls are kind of a big fat I right like now, it. but they're great because, yeah. you know, it's, I think almost it's a bowls are sort of round and they seem very like <laughs> comforting, motherly and comforting. <laughs> yeah. 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 But also bowls kind of give you a framework for putting together a meal. I mean, it used to be what, like a meat and two sides or starch, vegetables and a meat, you know, but now a bowl, you can sort of say, okay, well, I, I need a whole grain. I need some vegetables and I need a protein and I need some kind of flavoring it kind of helps you to just kind of get your dinner game organized, you know, each day. So start eating the bowls. And then as we move into the cooler weather, mm. I'm going to say break out your instant pot or yeah. order one yeah. if you yeah. haven't gotten one. Because <laughs> you love it, that it, thing. It is, it, is, it is a crazy <laughs> trend. And for that reason, I was a little bit suspicious. And I went over to a friend's house as she would be the first to tell you she cannot cook. And I went over to her house and she was making pot roast. This was in the cooler mm. weather. This was last spring. And it was unbelievable. And I thought, if this woman can make this pot roast, I need to get in on this. <laughs> All right, well, Amy, <laughs> describe what an Instant Pot okay, is. So an, yeah. yeah, so an Instant Pot is it's an electric pressure cooker that sits on your counter like a rice cooker or a slow cooker. And it, in many ways, achieves a lot of what the best slow cooking does with rich, really intense flavors that are developed, except it does it much more quickly under pressure. And I really have been amazed at the intensity of flavor that I can get out of the Instant Pot. Mm. Um, And it's not something I use a lot in the summer, but when you're getting into the cool weather months where you're going to be wanting soups and stews, Mm. there's no better way to cook soups and stews, in my view, an Instant Pot. And it does it in an hour. I mean, things that would take, like a pork shoulder that would take four hours, you can cook it in about an hour. Okay, so but does this the death of the crock pot then? No, I think some people still are going to be wedded to their crock pots. And I mean, I wouldn't... The Instant Pot has a slow cooker feature, so rather than having two appliances, I would just have one. Mm-hmm. I think, though, the one thing that the Crock-Pot does that the Instant Pot can't do, and this is 
something I use. So, so if you want your dish to reduce, if you want a sauce to reduce while it's cooking, the Instant Pot can't do that because it's a sealed environment. Whereas mm -hmm. when I say, I like to make, I have a recipe for an overnight apple butter that I like to make. And I'll kind of leave the lid slightly ajar overnight so that there's mm. some, you know, some reduction mm -hmm. going on with the sauce. You can't get that with an Instant Pot. So I guess it's not really the death of, of the slow cooker, but I'd say... 85% of the things I would do in a slow cooker, I would now do in an Instant Pot. Mm. And can I say, if you are a fan of cooking with wine, this is a great yes. technique, yes. both it of is. these, right. the, slow it is. the slow cooking and the pressure in terms of really concentrating yeah. whatever wine flavors or herbal flavors you got going on. And you in can the make dishes. yogurt awesome in it. You in can it. make, uh, you can cook whole grains really quickly. It's really amazing all the things you can do. It has a lot of functions. I got so into it that I actually considered doing a book on it. Wow. I wanted to do a cookbook. Okay. But then I realized that there were 30 <laughs> Instant Pot cookbooks in the pipeline, including one, which if you're going to buy one, Melissa Clark has one called mm. Dinner in an Instant, which mm. comes out in October. She's the, oh, we'll put that on the very popular yeah. columnist for The New York Times. I would probably go to hers first, mm -hmm. um, but there are some great, great books out there. It's And it's it's not expensive. You can get the smaller one for about 50 bucks. It's, I think, a six quart I have an eight quart because I like to do bigger cuts of meat, but mm -hmm. you know, it's great. But you can watch for the sales as well. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Joining me are our food and wine gurus, Amy Traverso, you just heard her, of Yankee Magazine and Weekends with Yankee, and Jonathan Alsop of the Boston Wine School. So, a couple things. While you open up this wine, um, which I think <laughs> Let's get you're to about that to do, we're talking about uh, winter. Yeah. <laughs> and this looks very um, deliciously red. Is this your transitional wine? Yes. So, first of all, whenever I come here, I know that you prefer something flavorful, yes. gutsy, intense yes. personality. That's right. Your love affair with Rosé confuses me. <laughs> oh, it's been so but, good. Um, oh, well, and also want to bring you, when I can, something new. Okay. So what is this? It so this good. is a red wine from northern Portugal. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the name of the grape is Turiga Nacional, and Nacional means national. Mm -hmm. And Turiga is like the same root of the word for tower. Mm. Mm. So the name of this grape is like National Monument is the name of this grape. Oh. And it's the core of a lot of port wines. You know, which are sweet, yes. super high alcohol dessert wines. This is not this. This yeah. smells this hot, is like red. it's high. Is it high alcohol? It, you know what? It says 13 and a half oh, percent. Yeah. yeah. So, so but yeah. but very ripe, very intense mm. um, this is grapes. Good transitional wine um, for sure. And um, this could carry you through the winter, actually. Yeah. How much absolutely. is this? Yeah, absolutely. This is less than 20. Okay. Is it widely available? Because you're saying this is something new, which I haven't had, so I yes. don't know if now. Uh, red Portugal well, this, wines are around. Well, this is this this is something that I want to bring to you as a tip, in terms of you know looking for great values and looking for uh, good bargains in wine. Portugal is the next hot okay. value okay. destination. Okay. So other wines that come from the same region, the Douro, mm -hmm. other wines are oh, 50, 70. Mm. You know, right. The ports are $100 a bottle. Mm. And these are an alternate mm. style from this famous region. And, mm. you know, the, pr the price is just a fraction of what it ought to be and what it might be in wow. the future. So, well, I so would say that this in, is good. Exploring anywhere good. in Portugal is my tip for fall. So and, for a more familiar grape that people might know, like what would you compare? It's closer to a... It tastes like something, and I was trying to figure out yeah. what it's it tasted you know, like. Uh, you know, maybe Syrah. Okay. Syrah, right. Grenache, yeah. Morvedra, you know, those okay. hot climate red grapes. This is yeah. right there 
in my bailiwick, I would say. I knew you would like it. I think that's right. <laughs> and it's going to be something I'm going to need uh, to help me drink because, Amy, the trend now in food is tiny, tiny plates, for which I pay a lot of money. This yeah. is so, you pointed me to this piece in the Boston Andy Globe. Andy Levinsky wrote yes, for the magazine. Called, I'm tired of tiny amounts of food at supersized prices. <laughs> in case other people have been out and wondering, why is my plate so little? Right, right. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I remember back when the recession hit, Boston had opened a whole slew of steakhouses. It was sort of the last gasp of the boom times, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden the, the market tanked, and we were sitting on all these steakhouses. <laughs> and I, I was, at the time, food editor of Boston Magazine. I was talking to these restaurateurs. What are you doing? What are you doing? And they all said, well, we're bringing our portion size down from, say, eight ounces to six. Well, now what they're doing is taking from four to three. And I have to say, I mean, this article, he's expressing frustration, a frustration which many people share, and it's very legitimate. I would say, you know, there are plenty of restaurants serving small plates at very reasonable prices. and kind With of, food on the plate. With food on the plate. Where you, you get a few, you share them, and you walk out, you do feel full. Yeah. But... Yes, restaurants are constantly looking for creative ways to to cut costs because real estate's expensive, wages are everything's expensive. It's a low margin business. You have to find somewhere to cut. So portion sizes might be getting smaller. And Boston, for better or worse, is becoming a you know more like a San Francisco, mm. you know, a, a place of concentrated wealth where I think everybody assumes that people are fairly price insensitive, which actually isn't true. That's I think right. Bostonians will there will be a backlash against this. Well, well I think there's a backlash in some restaurants. I've been yeah. out and seen people do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, speaking of San Francisco, the, the restaurant that essentially invented this incomprehensible small plate <laughs> thing, Bar Tartine, oh, this place yeah. is closed. So, and I yeah. like so in, I like small. I like having a lot of food at the table, and you taste a little bit. I do like that, but I don't want to pay what I would pay for a five course prefix meal for a table full of small plates. And it really depends on the size. Now, I, I this just brought to mind one of my favorite scenes from a TV show called uh, Odd Mom Out. It's on Bravo. Yeah, that's a fun <laughs> That is very funny. And in season one, the episode was called Omakasi, which translates to me, I'll leave it up to you, Chef's Selection. But in this scene, um, the Odd Mom Out Jill is at this very high-priced Japanese restaurant, and here's just a little scene of what she was getting on her plate. First course is fresh daikon leaf with sea salt. <laughs> it's literally a leaf. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, there are lots of great restaurants where they are doing small plates, but you feel full. They're rich enough. They're, you know, satisfying. So I'm definitely not poo-pooing the small plates trend, but I think restaurants need to be real careful about appearing stingy when they're doing it. I would agree. And if I go somewhere and have a leaf, you're going to hear about it. (laughs) And this this guy called out two places, which are maybe two prime offenders, but are not the only people who are are guilty of... And I have to um, say, I've eaten at Waypoint and Shepherd. I did not leave feeling hungry, um, and I didn't leave feeling soaked. But it's entirely possible that there are minefields on those menus where if you happen to order the wrong thing, yeah. you'll Some of these leave. prices are stupid. I mean, if you don't like, yeah. if you don't like octopus, $29 is too much no matter what you get. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I think, it. look, the dim sum has been around for a long time, and it's a very successful model. I think 
you can definitely ring up a tab with dim sum, but you are stuffed. Mm. And granted, exactly. they might be lower cost things like buns, which are cheap to make. But, you know, I think restaurants should keep that in mind that we've eaten dim sum. We know mm-hmm. sort of what that seems like a fair price point for a tiny plate of food. And I will say, having been at Minton once, because someone else was paying, because it's very, very <laughs> expensive and it's small plates, but I was really full. Yeah, it's yeah. a I mean, lot. It's very rich and delicious food. So mm-hmm. yeah. you can pay a lot and get something yeah. as well. So I just yeah. wanted to say that. Well, and that's got a long background and a long tradition. Right. You know, Spanish tapas is the same way. Exactly. People who've been doing it for a thousand years right. really know how to do it right. So. Yeah. All right. Now, Jonathan, um, there is some wine news, and I want you to address it, and that's mm-hmm. about total wine winning a lawsuit against Massachusetts, and what does that mean? Yes, yeah, so... To, and I'm so, speaking to Jonathan Alsop of the Boston Wine School. Yeah, so in terms of, you know, something that is strangely happening under the radar, mm-hmm. yet right in our face, mm-hmm. is the big boxification of wine. Mm-hmm. And things like Total Wine and other huge wine entities. And and there's more than just, you know, we talk about Total Wine because they're the first one to arrive. Right. There's There's many, many more Total Wines in line behind them to come in and open wine warehouses here. And one of the things that they're doing and one of the things that they're saying is, how come our business is regulated in this strange way? You know, how come we have to jump through all these hoops? And in, and, in Massachusetts in particular, it's yeah, kind it's really of ridiculous. Strong. Massachusetts yeah. in particular. Yeah. Some states are, are more open in terms of their free trade policies. You know, some states, Total, and these other entities have already won. Mm. So now. are you saying, because people don't understand what this lawsuit means, so I need for you to make clear well, what that means. Well, what this yeah. lawsuit means is yeah. this is the beginning of the deregulation okay. of wine uh, retailing in Massachusetts. Okay. So that a big retailer like Total can come in like Lowe's, like Walmart, Mm -hmm. like a big warehouse style. And undercut prices. Undercut prices. And and what we're about to see is the going away of the small neighborhood wine shop, just like we saw Mm -hmm. the disappearance of... The neighborhood hardware store, you know, cast your mind back to 17 or 23 years ago. What would we do knowing where where it goes? What would we do differently now to preserve that in our neighborhood? We would offer service because those stores are still around. That's the that is the difference in big box or any of those big entities versus a mom and pop. If you give me the service Mm -hmm. that I cannot that then then you can hang on. Yes. I mean, and I, I don't want to see, I don't want to lose the neighborhood wine no. stores. What bothers me with Massachusetts is it seems the laws have mostly been written to benefit the liquor distributors yes. mm-hmm. who are obviously patrons of the politicians. And, you know, I remember being so frustrated when I lived in California for a couple of years, moved back to my home of Massachusetts and realized that I couldn't belong to any wine clubs. Mm. I couldn't. So there are issues. Well, I'm supporting um, the small wine shops and yeah. the independent bookstores. I know because I can't stand it. This whole pumpkin spice oh, thing. Boy. Is it coming back, Amy? Is <laughs> okay, it coming here's back, the Jonathan? thing. The good news. I'm <laughs> yes. good news, Trip. Oh, man. Pumpkin spice is coming back as full force Ugh. as it has been for the past couple of years. But the public shaming of people who are <laughs> consuming public spice is, is at an all-time peak. So so while we are at peak public spice, we are at peak shame. And I'm contributing and I'm to that as much that. as I can. Yeah, and it's it. unfortunate. I mean, look, it's a perfectly nice flavor combination. Five years ago, in, yes. in the form of a muffin that you had once during the season. I know. But so are many other flavors. Cranberries and walnuts exactly. taste good together. Apples and cinnamon. I mean, you could go in many directions. So, Jonathan, but they're putting it in wine now, mulled wine, you're well, suggesting? So one of, the th- one of the things that we are very nervous about as wine lovers is the correct temperature of 
wine. Right. People in class, they talk about this constantly, as if we have a lot of control over it. I mean, we do. We have refrigerators and stuff, but, you know, we're not that specific with it. But one of the things that it makes us nervous about is, you know, having red wine cold. And in the case of what you're talking about, mulled wine, having red wine or white wine hot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been, you know, I've been teaching in China the last three or four years. And in Shanghai during the winter, this is a huge thing. Bookstores, wine shops, um, mulled wine. And in this case, no pumpkin. Mulled wine is a pumpkin-free zone. <laughs> in um, China. But what, but, what you're, but what you're doing with the spices is you're using pumpkin pie spice. Mm. You're using Thanksgiving, mm. Christmas, holiday mm-hmm. spice. And it's the kind of thing that you can adjust. You can make it as tangy or as sweet as you want. You can add a lot of sugar to it so that you have kind of a sweet mulled wine. You know, you can put in rosemary and sage. Uh, You can put in whole black peppercorns so you have a real mulled wine that is like super peppery and hot. And this, to me, when I taste something like this, this kind of takes me back in time. When I think about mm. how people used to cook wine mm. and live with wine and flavor wine and put fruit and things in wine, mold wine is more like what wine has tasted like for the last thousands of mm. years. And I enjoy than it. some of our perfect yeah. modern yeah. wine. I enjoy so. it. Well, thanks, you two, for joining me today. Enjoyed it, Jonathan. Thank you. And thank you, Amy. Thank you. Amy Traverso is the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine, the co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and the author of the Apple Lover's Cookbook. And Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and the author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at WGBH.org. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and Bill Piacitelli. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.